if you don't take a step forward, you'll stay there forever. I started doing this thing we called our worst case scenario motto. I would ask the kids, okay, if I set this concrete block right here, what's our worst case scenario? And it started out, the kids are like, oh my God, you could drop it on your ankle and fracture your ankle. Airplane engine could fall out of the sky and crush me. You know, that tree branch could fall. (laughs) You know, they'd come up with these ridiculous things. And I'd have to kind of hone them in. Okay, what's the actual most likely thing that could go wrong? (laughs) And it was, we could do it wrong. And then we'd have to do it over. And I'd be like, okay, well, can you live with that? And yeah, we'd done that 12 times already that day. Of course, we can live with doing something wrong. So we just learned that once you identify what is the worst case scenario of this thing I'm about to try, and can I live with that? If the answer is yes, then there is absolutely nothing to fear. Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the KonMari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest. With your hosts and certified KonMari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. What's standing between you and your biggest goal? What's standing in the way of your highest potential and true success? If you've let the barrier of lack of time, energy, motivation, or lack of skill stop you from completing your tidying event or achieving any other major goal in your life, this episode is for you. Today's SparkJoy guest is Kara Brookins. Not only does Kara live in a tidy 3,500 square foot house of joy that's beautiful and intentionally designed, she built that house with her four children by hand over nine months using YouTube videos as her guide and overcame many obstacles along the way. Her best-selling book, Rise, How a House Built a Family, has launched her career as a keynote speaker and media personality. She now helps people understand that reaching your highest potential isn't about how hard you work, but about adjusting your mindset and strategy to take full advantage of the hours you're putting in. Welcome to Spark Joy, Kara. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. So, Kara, you started your journey with one really big idea to build a two-story, five-bedroom house with your four kids with your own hands over nine months. So, wow. (laughs) Um, That's incredible. Can you take us back to what was going on in your life that made you decide to kind of embark on this really radical plan? And what was your thinking that helped you kind of come up with this idea? Sure. And I should say it didn't start out that big. It started out as just this little, well, I say spark of an idea, which fits perfectly here, that our life was in a really bad place. I was a victim of domestic violence. I had four kids. We had been stalked for more than a decade by a man with schizophrenia who was very violent and dangerous. And the kids and I were just really, really beat down. We had really low self-esteem. We had really small plans for our future. And we lived in constant fear. We didn't know how to communicate with each other, and we didn't have a place to live. We were living in a house that was up for sale. I had a great job as a computer programmer, so I had the potential to borrow money, but not enough to buy a house that we could kind of stretch out in and be proud of. So I kind of threw it up to the kids. I said, well, we could buy a little broken house and try to fix it up. You guys can kind of share rooms with bunk beds, or the same amount of money would buy this massive pile of supplies 
and we could build the house ourselves. And the kids, of course, immediately voted to build a house, partly because they wanted their own room, but also partly because you just <laughs> trust your mom and think she's not crazy. <laughs> but that's how it began. You know, it was just this idea that seemed perfectly natural and normal. I grew up in a family that sort of, you know, did things themselves. My parents dug a swimming pool for us when we were kids. That sounds like, oh, a little pond in the backyard. But no, they dug like a full-size swimming pool in our backyard with shovels and lined it and then built a house over it. So I kind of had that mindset growing up of, you know, you can do anything you want if you set your mind to it. So YouTube is the thing that really pushed me over the edge because prior to that, anything that you wanted to learn was hard. You had to get books from the library. You had to ask people. You had to bring someone on who could teach you. But YouTube was just in its infancy. I've lived in the house for 10 years. So we were building this in 2008, and it was the first time there was this ability to instantly see video of how to do something. And uh, my job was a computer programmer. So that sort of marriage of DIY mindset plus the technology is now available to show you how to do absolutely anything, including like running gas lines and plumbing. It seemed like the perfect and most natural solution. YouTube is, oh my goodness, they're just, they've gotten so big now. I'm curious, like what kind of offerings did they have that really helped you drill down? First, think about how we were watching it because sure. there were no smartphones. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> so we were watching it back at the house we were living in, which was about six miles from where we were building. So in the evenings, we would sit down in one of the big tube type monitors. We didn't even have flat screen monitors. The videos were grainy because no one had a high resolution camera. And we would Google things like how to set a foundation block. The videos were not the selection that you have out there now, but we could find a half dozen videos that showed different angles and different people in different parts of the country or the world that were showing different ways to set one foundation block. And then once we figured, okay, I've got this down, I think we could do that, then we'd go back to the job site and we would do that 1,500 times. <laughs> you know, oh that, that's how we did everything. Then moving forward, we would how to frame a window. And you know, there's more than one way to frame a window. Wow. So we would have to watch, you know, another half dozen videos of how to frame a window, then come back out to the construction site the next day after work and school. And okay, do you guys remember how to do this? You know, and we would kind of just hash it out and try to figure it out. So we were all 100% essential to the job. The kids were 17, 15, 11, and 2. So we had a toddler on the construction site the mm. whole time. And the 11-year-old knew everything about building a house that I did. She was just as knowledgeable. So everybody's opinion and idea and recall of the video we had watched was completely valid. Wow, that's the power of crowdsourcing, right? Right. <laughs> really early days, you know, oh, how I wish I had had a Twitter account then or even a Facebook account, you know, to share some of sure. this or even a blog. I didn't do any of those things then. There weren't YouTubers at that time. That wasn't a word or even a concept. So lots of people want to know, which videos did you watch? Can you send me a list? And it's like, oh, we watched hundreds and it was just hands. Back then, people didn't want to appear in a video. They just wanted their hands in it doing a thing. Yeah. It's amazing in what is a relatively short time, the way not only the technology has advanced, but the way our mindsets have changed and the types of people doing these things and doing the videos has changed. But I have to ask, just from a really practical perspective, how did you get your materials? I mean, I'm, I don't imagine that you were just going to Home Depot 
And I'm sure that like when you were going to, you know, the traditional builder supply companies, they were probably a little skeptical about (laughs) this mom with her kids building a house. First, before I could even get the supplies, I had to get a loan. Can you just imagine this crazy lady? I'm a computer programmer, so I'm pasty white pale from never going in the sunshine. I also was writing fiction novels at the time. So I'm best suited to be sitting behind a computer keyboard. I'm 110 pounds and I'm walking into a bank saying, I'm going to build myself a house. Please give me $130,000. They thought I was crazy. Fortunately, this was before the housing crisis. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) late Mm -hmm. 2007, it took me three different banks and a lot of different attempts and methods of trying to get them to loan me the money before I could even get that money. Then I had to get someone to sell me supplies and to do it on a contractor level without having a contractor's license. So I went to the traditional Lowe's and Home Depot and they were like, no, we don't sell to anyone as a contractor. But I found a small local lumber company that isn't even in business anymore, but they allowed me to be a contractor, which meant they would ship everything to me without charging me those extra shipping charges to bring in the pallets of concrete block and the pallets of lumber and nails and screws and all of that. Because it became a very big house, and that is a mountain of supplies. And it became big because I gave my kids a pencil and we designed the house ourselves. So of course, they kept adding feet to their rooms and walk-in closets. and (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. And speaking of skepticism, it sounds like the folks who were in charge of giving you the loan were a little bit leery of what you were doing, but were your friends and family outside of your children, like, how did they react? Were they like, are you crazy? What are you doing? (laughs) Or did they support you? Kind of twofold. The only people who really knew what we were doing were my parents, my mom and dad. My dad lived in Wisconsin and my mom lived about 75 miles north of Arkansas. So of course, they're the first people I call after we decide to do this and I'm super excited. And my parents had raised me with a massive DIY mindset. And they were always planning things like, hey, we could take a lawnmower engine and build a hang glider that we could use in our back 40. They had these crazy ideas. So I expected when I called them and told them what I was doing that they'd be like, well, of course, that's what you're going to (laughs) do. That is not how they reacted. Both of them were like, no, no, you should not do that. That's crazy. And they tried very hard to talk me out of it. But I should say both of them showed up at various times throughout the build. Despite the fact that they did not want me to do it, they showed up and they helped in any way that they could. So and that was fantastic. But as far as other people, now remember that I was in a situation of really extreme domestic violence. When that's the case, you are isolated from friends, from anybody. First of all, an abuser typically moves you away from people that could help you. And then you isolate yourself because you're not going to allow somebody to come into your home and see the state of your life and the way that you're treated. So you become very isolated. Your kids don't have friends over. So I didn't have close friends. And I did have coworkers. I had worked at the same job for years and years, but I did not tell them I was building a house. They knew that I was building a house, but they thought in the typical way of, you know, I had hired people and I was pointing (laughs) Um, because I would come into work, of course, exhausted. I was working full time as a programmer analyst, but I went into work very early in the morning and then got off work by three so I could work late into the night. 
Wow. So you built this house while you had a full-time job as well. Right. And of course, the kids were in school most of the year. So I would get off work at three, which meant I got up at 4.50 in the morning. I commuted into the office, dropped the little guy at daycare. Yeah. Then it was working until three, getting the kids from school. We'd go change into our construction clothes and come back to the construction site and work definitely until midnight. And towards the end, I was here till two or three in the morning. And I'd go home, sleep a couple hours, get up, do it again. And there were no breaks at all. It was absolutely brutal. Of course, from freezing cold weather to 110 degree weather, just absolutely brutal work. And we had no muscle starting out either, you know, so just that physical buildup and emotional buildup. And the fact that it feels impossible and hopeless every single day when you show up. It's fantastic looking back at it now, but day after day, it felt impossible and there was no evidence that we would succeed. And there was this constant fear that not only am I going to fail at this, in this attempt to teach my kids that they were powerful and that they were capable, have I just set them up to like have the biggest fall flat on your face that they could possibly have in this very public and physical way that we're just going to fail at building this house. So there was a whole lot of angst behind it and no one to share it with, right? I had to show up every day motivated and determined and positive and certain we could complete it because I had to be that person for the kids. I want to talk to you a little bit more about that. This was a huge goal and you had a fear of failure, a fear of the unknown, but you were able to really pull some courage out there to complete this project. I imagine, in my opinion, this goal is the example of overcoming fear of the unknown. And I know like general contractors whose profession is to build homes, they run across tons of challenges throughout a build. So I can't even imagine what you experienced learning these skills from scratch and executing them at the same time with your family involved as well. So can you walk us through some of the challenges that you had to overcome? Any kind of fear of a new circumstance can become absolutely paralyzing, right? Yeah. And in a situation like this, where every task you take on, you have no idea what you're going to do. You have no idea how to complete it. It could completely paralyze you and prevent you from moving forward. So we developed this mindset really, really early on in the process. And that would be when we were doing the foundation, which were those first freezing cold and these first really physical acts of having to haul these massive concrete blocks around and 80 pound bags of mortar mix. So it's physically exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. We're trying to learn how to communicate with each other really for the first time ever. So there are all of these challenges and we show up and it's like, okay, we have to set the first concrete block and we need water, we need mortar mix, we need sand, we have to set this first block. How do we do it? Well, nobody knows how to do it. And we stand there and kind of are kicking our feet at the mud and someone's going to throw some rocks in the hole. And if you don't take a step forward, you'll stay there forever. I started doing this thing we called our worst case scenario motto. I would ask the kids. Okay, if I set this concrete block right here, what's our worst case scenario? It started out, the kids are like, oh my God, you could drop it on your ankle and fracture your ankle. An airplane engine could fall out of the sky and crush me. You know, that tree branch could fall. You know, they'd come up with these ridiculous things. And I'd have to kind of hone them in. Okay, what's the actual most likely thing that could go wrong? <laughs> it was, we could do it wrong. And then we'd have to do it over. And I'd be like, okay, well, can you live with that? And yeah, we'd done that 12 times already that day. Of course, we can live with doing something wrong. So 
we just learned that once you identify what is the worst case scenario of this thing I'm about to try, and can I live with that? If the answer is yes, then there is absolutely nothing to fear. And I'd be, okay, hand me that brick. Let's set it in here. And I've got a sledgehammer. I know how to knock it out if things go wrong. So it just became the way that we approached every single thing. I'm going to have to build this crazy diagonal wall and I'm terrible at geometry and I, it has to meet code. I have to pay attention to so many different things. I have no idea what I'm doing. Bring me a board. I'll make a cut. And as I'm cutting the board, I know like this is not how you do it. I know this angle is wrong, but I know that I can then hold it up to the wall. I can chat with the kids about it. We can do some more bad math. And eventually we're going to figure this out. And I'm going to keep making cuts and moving forward until I do. So we adopted that mindset early. It stuck throughout the job. And then it continued after we finished the house. And we still use it constantly. Any new business venture or new thing. The kids want to move somewhere new because three of them are adults now. And it's okay. What's the worst case scenario of moving to Alaska? Well, you'd have to move home. Well, you're living at home now. So I think that'd be fine. You know, (laughs) Yeah. that was sort of our little trick that kept us moving. I think there's probably something kind of empowering about not knowing enough that you should be afraid of the adventure. I mean, I I think that for a lot of people, they would have literally no idea of how to proceed. Most people don't even know what is even involved in building a house. You have a contractor who's overseeing everything. You have people who are digging out the basement and people who are doing the plumbing and then electricians and the drywall people and the, the people who are doing the finishing and on and on and on. And you were literally doing all these things yourself. I have to ask, did you have somebody come dig out the basement? Did you rent machinery to do this? Were you literally up on the roof putting the shingles up? Did you have people come help you at all at any part of this process? Yeah, there were bits and pieces that we had to have people help part because like I said, I was building in the city limits. So I did have to have inspections done. Mm -hmm. I had to pull all of my permits. And there were some permits that they didn't allow me to pull. They didn't allow me to pull the heating and air conditioning permit. I had to have an electrician do that. And I had to have an electrician run the wire and do all of the electrical work. And they did allow me to do the plumbing and run the gas lines and that sort of thing. So I pulled that permit and did all of that. And aside from that, things like basement here where I live, we don't have basements. The water table's too high. Mm, So I did a block and fill foundation. So there's no crawl space and there's no basement. I did have to dig a footer though. And I hired someone to come in with a backhoe and dig a footer, which is just like a trench that goes around the whole perimeter that we then filled with concrete. And there were a couple of other things. We laid all of the concrete blocks for the foundation. But when it came to the finished brick on the front, I knew, okay, we learned how to lay a block and we can do that, but it's not really aesthetically pleasing. So it's functional, you know, (laughs) it's kind of like my welding. I learned how to weld. I can stick two pieces of metal together, but it isn't pretty, you know, (laughs) we hired someone to do the finished brick. And then things like, you asked about the roofing. We did, you know, the first story, we did the second story, then we started stick building the rafters. And because I built on a hill, the foundation is seven and a half foot tall in the front. So by the time you get on the roof, you're three stories high in the front half of the house. I was watching my 15 year old with a nail gun as we were stick building the rafters. We'd already put all the ceiling joists on the top. And he like had one ankle wrapped around a two by four, hanging head first over the side of the house with the nail gun. 
And I said, you know what? We're hiring someone to do the shingles and the last layer of plywood on the exterior of the roof. So there were bits of things like that that I just called no on. But then, you know, the massive parts of it, we did ourselves. We did all the hardwood flooring and as well as, of course, the framing and insulation and all of that sort of thing, tile. And the foundation, like I said, we are still learning so much there. And that speaks really a lot about fear, too, because when we first started doing the concrete blocks, like I said, there's 1,500 of these blocks. You need three ingredients. You need water. You need sand. You need mortar mix. I was the plumber. And that meant I had to hook into the city water main in order to get water onto the site. And I was terrified of doing that. When I pulled the permit, they told me if you collapse the street, because I had to drill under the street to get to the city water main, then you have to fix the street. Like you're responsible for fixing that. And I was like, good Lord, I'm trying to figure out how to build a house. I don't have time to figure out how to build a street. too." You know? <laughs> so I just kept putting it off. And we had a nine-month construction loan. That's all the time that we were allowed to build the house. So I couldn't just wait until I gathered the courage. So instead, we had to get water from my neighbor's half-frozen pond and haul these buckets of water up and mix all of the mortar in a wheelbarrow to build the entire foundation. Where two months later, when I gathered the courage and hooked up that city water main, which I just had to hire someone to bore under the street for me, and it could have collapsed, I would have been responsible for it, but it didn't. It was simple. It was like, you know, an hour job of hooking up this water main. And here I had delayed us and made our work 10 times harder if I hadn't been afraid just to leap in and do it. So, you know, it was a, a really good lesson for me. After that, anything that needed to be done, I was like, I'll give it a try. <laughs> you know, I could save months of my own time. And hauling buckets of water is hard work, in addition to hauling the block and mixing it and setting it all. So yeah, that was one of those unfortunate hiccups in the beginning that I overcame and that really overcame a mindset for me. I would imagine that it is super empowering to have gone through that experience, but there's also something that sounds really powerful about recognizing when you should reach out for help and this idea of, well, I'm going to give it a try, but I've decided that if I can't do this myself or if it's more cost effective or will be a better outcome to hire someone else to do it, that's what I'm going to do. Right. And it comes back to that same question, right? What's the worst case scenario? Right. If the worst case scenario is my son landing on his head on the brick shrapnel at the bottom of this house, then if your worst case scenario is unacceptable, if your answer is unacceptable and you can't live with it, then you have to change something about the situation. Sure. You know, it doesn't mean charge forward into any situation. It means evaluate it. Be realistic. You know, when we were framing the house with wood, when we were at that point and I'd ask that question, they'd say, you know, you could cut your hand off. Well, true. So let's learn really well how to use these tools, take precautions against cutting our hand off. Now we've eliminated that worst case scenario. We can move forward. I'm just so impressed. I also absolutely love the inside of your house as oh, well. <laughs> I've seen the photos and really it's beautiful and intentional. And that's on the inside and the outside. After speaking with you, I understand why, because of just, wow, all that you've gone through and accomplished, it really has reflected through the final project. And you lovingly call your home Inkwell Manor. Can you tell us a little bit about where that name came from? Sure. And I don't think I was as intentional about the interior until after we built it. Mm -hmm. um, but I was very intentional about the exterior and the structure. And I built it super energy efficient. That was a huge thing for me. Everything about the house was built energy efficient. And we named it prior to building it, before we even set the first block or dug the footer, it had a name, Inkwell Manor. 
And that was because I did not want to be a house builder. That was not my life goal. And my life goal was to continue being a writer. And I wanted a house that was comfortable, that was super efficient so that it would be inexpensive to live in, that would have a library where I could sit and write books. So the idea of this house kind of being the protective aspect of it, but also that sort of inkwell where all of my future books would come from. So that's where the name came from. And my dad helped me make a big concrete sign that's in front of our house that names it. Part of that was a declaration, right? Because it's so easy to find excuses for not reaching for a crazy big goal, like writing books and trying, you know, it's hard to write books. It's hard to get books published. It's hard to be successful as a writer. But I think that any goal you have, if you put some like massive physical representation, whether it's artwork or in this case, a massive sign declaring, I am a writer, it really makes you want to live up to it. You can't run from it. People are going to ask you about it. And then you're going to have to reaffirm that goal. It's a concrete post-it note. (laughs) Right. I am a writer. So yeah, that's what the, the naming was all about. And everything in the house, too. There's lots of artwork in the house that I made myself. A massive typewriter. I made a a wooden sort of canvas for it and hand-painted every letter on it. I painted a large thing that goes in my den that's the last sentence of my book, Rise. So there's so many things in it that are intentional about writing. I have one wall of my house that's papered in antique book pages. So it's all a reminder. Everywhere you go, you can't hide from that goal. Yeah, and we'll make sure to include a photo of your home on oh, sure. SparkJoy Instagram because I want our listeners to see it. I know we have a lot of listeners who love books as well, love writing and are very creative. So I definitely want to share that visually with everyone and we'll include it in the show notes as well. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about what you decided to keep within your space. Did you have a philosophy or, or any methods that you used in terms of determining what stays inside? That was so much more intentional right after we moved in. I guess that the Mm -hmm. kids were 17, 15, 11, and two. And it was very intentional to only keep the things that we needed and to try to only acquire, especially when it comes to clothing and stuff, you know, to only acquire things that we love. You know, you don't buy a shirt because it's on clearance and, you know, you you have to love it. You have to to really love it. So, so Mm -hmm. much about our space was that way and that it had to reflect ourselves, each one of us, our personalities. The complication in that comes as your kids kind of go off to college and leave stuff. That's my biggest challenge now because they've moved in. The oldest three have moved out and in and out and in a few times, (laughs) each time leaving a new variety of things. In fact, I just this last weekend kind of faced that where we decided to make one of our extra bedrooms into a recording studio to do some videos. It was this closet is filled with things that belong to a kid who no longer lives here and trying to make those determinations. And it, it came down to asking those same questions. You know, what do they love? What do I love? What still belongs in their life? They aren't this person anymore. This is their childhood self still in this room. So it was making those very, very intentional decisions. But it's a challenge. It's tough. It's tough to let go of things that represent periods in your own life or especially, I think, for me, harder periods in my kid's life and to make that decision for someone else. Yeah, I think a lot of our our listeners probably have gone through very similar situations. I kept thinking, Kristen and I have some great tips for you on how to deal with them. (laughs) Well, you're starting at a great place because I realized recently I actually didn't use the word joy a whole lot when I was going through my Kunmari process because Mm. I interpreted spark joy as like, what do I love? So whenever I pick up something that I want to keep, 
I could tell that I really like it when I'm like, oh yeah, I love this. Oh my gosh, I wear this all the time. Or, oh, I'm going to keep this forever. If I'm using language like that, that's was kind of my criteria. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I, I of course, in the, on the larger scale, ask myself what sparks joy now. Yeah, it's all about love, respect, honor, gratitude, all those great things. And it shows in your home. It's truly a reflection of your journey. There's the separation of nostalgia from joy, too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's where it becomes complicated, especially for me, for family members that I no longer have. And you want to make sure you can keep some things that belong to them, some of the things that bring that nostalgia, but you don't have to keep all of them. And it was coming to that, you know, I lost my mom and my grandparents mm. so and my brother. I don't have a lot of family. I don't have people. So you want to hold on to a bit of that, but that recognition that, yeah, you can hold on to a bit, but not all. <laughs> And to remind my kids too, and this is something I remind them all the time, like I'm holding on to this because it was my grandmother's or my great grandmother's. It means something to me. If it means nothing to you when I'm gone, let it go. Never hold on to something because it meant something to someone else. So that's one of the criteria I've given the kids. And I think that that's one of the main reasons that the sentimental category is the last one that we do because it is so difficult and so challenging and takes a lot of practice with some of the things that aren't quite so difficult. But speaking of your kids, how has this entire experience impacted them? It's been, what, about 10 years since you built the house? And some of them, as you mentioned, are now adults. What has been the lasting impact on their lives? Oh, goodness. It changed everything. Just watching them when they were these teenagers and preteens going through school and looking at their futures and the uncertainty that they felt, the way they held themselves back compared to when they did graduate from school and went off to college. And my son moved up to Alaska and then he moved to Denver. My daughter lived in LA and DC. And now one lives in Toronto, one lives in DC, one is here in Little Rock. And then of course, the youngest is just 12. But they have this fearless way of trying anything. Anything from like climbing an ice wall to snowboarding to starting multiple businesses to flying to foreign countries in this way that as a mom, I want to say, whoa, 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 are you sure? But like as a human, I'm like, yes, go do this, you know, try it all. They're cautious from a standpoint of they're intelligent, they weigh the odds, but then they go ahead and try it. And they're like, if I fail, so what? That's the biggest thing. They're not afraid to fail. Failure at something they try isn't attached to their own self-worth. It was a venture they tried, didn't work. I'm going to try something else. So they're just these brilliant, fearless people. So I'm so impressed with them and the way that we've continued to communicate as a family and the way that we've worked together as a family in various business ventures. We trade skills because we are still a massive DIY family. You're never going to you know, knock that out of us. So I might write some copy for one of their businesses and they'll, they'll do some website work for me or something like that. You know, we trade this type of thing. So they're just powerful, powerful people. I'm in, continuously impressed. And now they're working with me. We have a feature film that's underway about our story. And they're kind of helping me figure out how's the screenplay going to go. I'm working with the screenplay writer sort of rewriting our, our story for Hollywood. And they've all been parts of bits and pieces of that. So cool. Congratulations on that feature Thank you. film. Scary. It's a scary it's, thing. I, I mean, bet. it's exciting, <laughs> but it's it's more fun when it's a cocktail game. You know, like if somebody made a story about your life, who would play you? Yeah. But when it's real, it's scary just because it's a, a such a, a public representation of yourself that isn't entirely you. Mm-hmm. It's Hollywood. So it's not 
the full truth. You know, I wrote the book and that's the truth. And then you have the Hollywood version and you have this fear of, gee, what if it doesn't turn out great? Or what if it represents me or one of my kids in a way we don't like? We're stuck with that forever. There's no reining it back in. Fortunately, we have some fantastic producers. We have an A-list actress who really wants to be part of it. Great studio. I, I can't announce all of those yet until the studio announces, but the producers are escape artists who've had tons of successful films, including like The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith. So they're great producers. So I have a lot of confidence in them. And the fear is one of those things that it could have stopped me. It could have made me say, no, don't do a film. But, you know, it's one of those things, again, where you come up against it and you're always the question is, what's the worst case scenario or what's the alternative? And in this case, because the story is about domestic violence, it's about mental illness. Those are the undertones. That's the why of the story. The primary story, of course, is rebuilding a life. But those are the undertones of the story. And the alternative is to not have a movie, is to not have a book, is to stay silent. And that's dangerous. That's been dangerous for so many victims throughout history that we can't be silent anymore. There has to be a voice and somebody has to be that person and uh, some kid has to be that kid. Their life is out there. So uh, we made the decision that that outweighed the fear. So I just want to mention that you had said earlier and you were speaking about how domestic violence has been such a big part of your story. And I'm just thinking, you know, if we have some listeners who would benefit from getting your input into what they might do if they're in that kind of a situation, do you have any advice for someone who's going through a similar situation? Absolutely. I mean, the first thing, of course, is always to start out with this mindset of safety. It's not as easy as walking away. You know, that's the, the thing we hear all the time. Why don't they leave? Victims are 75% more likely to be killed after they leave. So it's a very dangerous decision to make, and you have to make it with lots of safety nets in place. And there are so many shelters out there who have helped women make that transition for decades now so they know the safe ways to do it and to help you stay safe. So I would caution not to take the advice that says, just walk away, just leave, do it in a safe manner for you. And if you have children or any other family members that could be affected to do it that way, but look at yourself, look at your own value and look at what you're capable of. And so many people are sitting there and they know I could do so much more than this. I could be so much better than this. I could be so much bigger than this. And this situation is holding me back. So look at yourself, value yourself and your kids. And that was a big part of it. If you're not doing it for yourself, if you're just doing it for your kids, it's temporary. You have to find that I'm doing it for my kids and myself. And here's a safe way to do it. So, you know, those steps are essential and in the order of safety first. Thank you so much for sharing that. What a powerful message. And I'm hoping that reached someone who needed to hear that in this moment today. Thank you for sharing, Kara. And I would love to just chat a little bit about how you are doing right now. I mean, you talked about how this project impacted your kids, but it seems like you have taken a turn in terms of the whole direction of, of your life. You're now doing keynotes and sharing your story, helping others and teaching others those unconventional lessons that you learned through this amazing experience. So how is your life going today? What's sparking joy for you? It's so funny how life can spin you around. The book came out a year and a half ago, and it became this viral story, 75 countries. It was viewed more than 2 billion times so far. 
that's coming out in traditional Chinese and next. And then we have the film and, you know, so many things happening and other foreign deals. And then, like you said, the speaking, which has become my primary profession now is speaking to corporations, you know, at events. Again, go back to what's that sign in my front yard about? It was about writing books, right? And my jobs as a computer programmer previously, and then as writing, are the farthest thing from standing on a stage that you can imagine. They're all about sitting behind a keyboard. So what a massive change in perspective and in goals. And I had to really evaluate, especially over the last year, like I had never planned to be a speaker. I was horrified to get on a stage the first few times. Back in school, when I had oral communications class, I stood up in front of the class and cried like a baby. I was terrified. So to reevaluate, like, does this fit in with my life goal? And do I want this to be a life goal? So I spent the last year really reorganizing, replanning, trying to figure out, is this the right direction for me? And every time I go someplace to speak, I have, you know, generally a book signing after or at least a mingle where I get to talk to people. And the number of people that come up to you and say these words, you did this thing. Now, I believe I can do this thing. You know, it may not be build a house. Maybe it's build a business. Maybe it's paint my dining room. Sure. But it's like because they saw somebody who was unlikely take on some big challenge, they believe they could. How could you not get up and stand on a stage and say that again when it just became more and more clear that like this is what I need to do? And not just need to do, but want to do, you know, made that transition over. And of course, I still want to write. I have another a new nonfiction book that I'm working on right now. It's just in research stages where I'm doing tons and tons of research and a whole notebook full of fiction books I want to write in the future. But I'm okay putting that on hold. The sign is still in the yard. It's still what I'm going to do. But it's just a part. It's just a part of who I am and what I'm going to do. No longer like the one and only thing, which I think is healthier. Thank you for giving us an update. I mean, you are inspiring so many. And before you leave us, share what your favorite tidying tip is or your favorite home DIY tip. Okay, DIY tip. Everybody needs a cordless drill. Men, women, everybody, you need a cordless drill and you don't keep it out in the garage or the shop. You keep it in the house so that it's there, it's ready, and you never have the excuse of not having the tools to do a project because it's like the main tool you're going to need. Tidying up tip. I do this thing, and my mom used to always tell me this, anytime you go in a room, leave it better than when you came in. I like that one. And I do it like in this almost obsessive way where like I'm just kind of passing through the room, you know, (laughs) but here's this little thing that I can make better. And sometimes it's hard, you know, sometimes the house is actually looking pretty good and you have to work at it. You know, you may have to open the closet to find something or somebody's shoes are there or whatever. Maybe it's a piece of paint, an area of paint that needs to be touched up. You know, you may have to really search for it. But can you imagine, I try to get my kids to do this and they are not as good at it, especially the 12 year old. But can you imagine if everybody in your house did this in every room, like how easy it would be just make every room better. I love that tip so much because I also think that that applies to the world. So, you know, this whole idea that not only should you leave a room in better shape than when you entered it, but maybe also the world. And some of the things that you were talking about are so inspiring because I think what your message is really about having really big dreams, but just taking them one step at a time. And that's the best direction forward. So maybe it starts with the room and ends with the world in a bit of a better place. 
Yeah, I agree 100%. And to make it big, I think that we have these big dreams and the number of people who will say, I want to build a house someday. I hear that every day and I'm like, well, then do it. Don't have that be something I want to do someday. Don't wait until it's the right moment because it never will be. Whatever that thing is that you want to do, start doing it now. I don't care if it just means like you saw a faucet on clearance that you really loved when you were at Lowe's, then pick it up. Now that's the first step toward your new house and keep doing those steps. People wait and then they start too small too. I'm all about doing big things. Love that. So Kel, what is sparking the most joy for you today? Oh, the most joy is definitely sharing to get up and share a message in front of an audience and then to get to listen, to get to hear all of these stories, to just be one person after another coming and telling me something that they have done or that they're about to do. I love that moment. Thank you for sharing that. And we'd love to end with some parting words of wisdom. Do you have any tips for someone who might be feeling a little bit paralyzed at the moment? Maybe they have a big goal whether it be tidying or something else that involves their home or their family? Well, I think the tidying has to come not just in your home, but in your mind. There are a lot of people who say, I know I can do better than I'm doing right now. I want to do something, but they don't have that goal. They don't even know what that thing is. So I think that this tidying of your house and figuring out those things that bring you joy and then carrying that on to some sort of vision board, whether it's a Pinterest board, a, you know, something digital or something on the wall that isolates that goal, that number one thing that you want to be known for, that you want to be, and then point everything you've got toward it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kara. It's been a pleasure hearing your story. It was incredibly inspiring. And you're just an awesome model of your truth and just really a great example for your children as well. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you both. And I'm lucky. My kids give it right back to me. They're my examples now too. So it's a fantastic cycle. Awesome. To connect with Kara, visit karabrookins.com. You can also find her on Facebook at Kara Brookins Author or Twitter at Kara Brookins. And check out her book, Rise, How a House Built a Family. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning, tidying questions or share stories about how Kanmari has impacted your life. You can find us at sparkjoypodcast.com and click Ask Spark Joy to leave a question or comment for a chance to be featured on next week's show. While you're there, sign up to join our Spark Joy podcast community and get notified when each episode airs. You can also join the SparkJoy podcast community on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the handle at SparkJoyPodcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope your day sparks joy. Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your host, Kristen Ivey, of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago, and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City. Spark Joy, the podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Conmari Media Incorporated. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co-hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of Conmari Media Incorporated or the Conmari Consultant Community.